Go ahead and find John chapter 3 with me. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. There are over 30,000 verses in the Bible. Now, that is, um, frankly, kind of an arbitrary number. Um, The verse divisions and numbers were added centuries after the Bible was completed. Um, And I think we need not find any special significance in chapter and verse numbers, as if there's some significance to the fact that 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, has the 13 in it. Oh, 13 is a holy number. We need not do that. Um, You know, I I once heard a sermon about the other 316s. It was called something like that, the other 316s, where the preacher talked about other chapter 3, verse 16s. So he did, I don't know, maybe Matthew 3.16, whatever that says, and Luke 3.16, and that that sort of thing. It's kind of a creative idea, but it's ultimately a gimmick. Um, And the original authors would have made no no such divisions. And had Paul dropped in on that lesson, it would have been utter nonsense to him. But living on the other side of the numbered chapters and verses, if we're just ranking chapter and verse numbers, there is a definite front runner for the most famous chapter and verse in the Bible. I just referenced a sermon called The Other 316s, but I didn't say what the original 316 was, because you already know what that one is. I don't have to say it. Of the more than 30,000 verses in the Bible, John 316 is far and away the most famous and well-known verse in our Bibles today. It's all over pop culture, has been for a while. Maybe some of you remember in the 1970s, uh, there was a man wearing a rainbow wig who started showing up at big sporting events behind the goalpost or behind home plate, holding a John 3.16 sign. He called him Rainbow Man sometimes. Uh, And the fad sort of uh, caught on. It's common today to even see someone holding up a sign that says John 3.16 or sometimes just 3.16. Famously, in, in the 2009 college football national championship game, Tim Tebow wrote John 3.16 on his eye black underneath his eyes. It was reported, Google reported, that during the game, 94 million people Googled John 3.16 as a result of seeing that on his eye black. Or if you have ever been to an In-N-Out burger, uh, it's a West Coast thing, but there's a few in Dallas now actually, but um, if you look on the bottom of a a cup of In-N-Out burger, it will say John 3.16 on the bottom. It's just sort of a very common pop culture thing. John 3.16 is everywhere. My mission today is quite simple. It's to read John 3.16 in context. Let me remind you, the Bible is not a a reference book or a law code that is divided up into tiny segments. The segments it is divided up into, the Bible didn't do, the authors didn't do, it's a later imposition. And the Bible verses are not meant to be read in isolation from everything else around them. They're meant to be read context. We shouldn't just read verses, we should read paragraphs, we should read chapters, or we should read whole books. It's true of every verse in the Bible that it means what it means in its original context. So my question is simply this, why does John 3.16 say what it says? What elicited those famous words? Who says them? What's the story? What's happening around it? And I think if we pay attention to the context, John 3.16 becomes that much more meaningful. So let's begin with what comes before John 3.16. And what comes before is a conversation between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. So this is John 3 and verse 1. 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so we meet this man named Nicodemus. The first thing we are told is that he is a Pharisee, meaning he is a member of the most scrupulous sect of Jews, um, a, a relatively small group within, within first century Judaism, but one that wielded a lot of influence that had a lot to say about the law, and a lot of people listened to them about what the law meant. We're also told he is a ruler among the Jews, which probably means he is a member of the Sanhedrin, the sort of ruling body in, uh, in Jerusalem. He wields power and influence. We'll find in verse 10, Jesus calls him a teacher of Scripture. And so he is something like a rabbi as well. So here comes Nicodemus, who has heard about this sign-working rabbi Jesus. He had just made a scene at the Passover back in chapter 2 of John when he uh, cleansed the temple and all of that. And he sort of comes, comes here to check him out. He wants, he wants to, to see what Jesus is about. And I think up front, we see in verse 2, his address and his tone seem pretty respectful. They reflect, I think, a genuine interest in what Jesus is up to. Not all the Pharisees come to find, to find what Jesus is about. Some of them just write him off from the beginning. Not Nicodemus. And yet, based on Jesus' response and the ensuing conversation, I think Jesus detects something else in Nicodemus' visit. We could possibly read verse 2 with a bit of a patronizing tone, where Nicodemus is patting Jesus on the back saying, Hey, Jesus, you show some promise. Keep your nose clean. Maybe you'll be in my seat one day. Maybe you'll be as important as I am one day. So maybe he's saying something like that to Jesus. He may be, may be also implying a question. You know, Jesus, you've shown me something with your signs, but I need a little bit more information. Just who are you? Nicodemus has come to size Jesus up. Well, Jesus does not give Nicodemus what he's looking for. If that's what he's looking for, Jesus doesn't give it to him. Jesus isn't flattered by this compliment in verse 2. He doesn't answer the implied question meant to put Jesus under the microscope. Instead, what Jesus begins to do is to put Nicodemus under the microscope. This is verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a remarkable thing to say to, to a man like Nicodemus. Here's a man who's a ruler of God's nation. And Jesus says, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, this thing Nicodemus thought he was sort of a, a head honcho in, if you want to be a member of the kingdom of God, you need to be born again. He says, Nicodemus, there's something about you. And you need to go and start all over. You need to be born again. If you want to be not top head honcho in the kingdom, but rather admitted at all, you need to be born again. To this wise rabbi, Jesus says, you must become like a baby. You know, if you tell someone you need to be born, think about what birth is. Birth is not a slight alteration of your circumstances. Birth is a completely new life. And he says, Nicodemus, that's what you need. You don't need a little tweak here and there. You need to start all over again. So this is what Jesus is getting at here. If he really is what Nicodemus has said he is, if he is a teacher come from God, one who God is with, Nicodemus, if I just take you at your word, then the real task of Israel and its leaders is not to put Jesus under the microscope. It's to put themselves under it. They shouldn't be asking Jesus who he is. They should be asking themselves if they're ready to receive him, if they're ready to be born again. Now, this... And verse 4 kicks off a lively conversation about this idea of being born again. This is verse 4. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, quote, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes or from where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, I suspect Nicodemus had some idea that this new birth idea was a way of describing a deeper spiritual truth. He's playing dumb, but I I suspect he has some idea about that. I think in verse 4, he's sort of being obtuse. He's playing dumb so as not to acknowledge what Jesus just implied about him. That he needs to radically rethink his approach to God and who he thinks he is before God. He's sort of playing dumb. Well, let's, let's, what are you talking about, Jesus? We must be born again. And so Jesus begins to describe the new birth in verse 5 as being born of water and of spirit. Now, what does that mean? In verse 2, Jesus will reproach Nicodemus for not understanding all of this, given his status as a teacher of God's word, which I think tells us Jesus is not introducing a new concept here, being born of water and spirit, something that's never been said before. This is something that any rabbi, any good rabbi, should have already known what he was talking about. And I think verse 5 is pretty explicitly an echo of Ezekiel 36. We're not going to turn there now, but in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, God promises to combine water and spirit to cleanse and transform his people. This culminates in Ezekiel 37, the most famous chapter of Ezekiel, where the valley of dry bones is given new life, a new birth, if you will, a resurrection. What he's saying in verse 5 is, Nicodemus, you need what Ezekiel foresaw. You are one in the valley of dry bones, and you need to become a part of this people who God will breathe new life into through the means of water and the means of spirit. Now, verse 6 states a very simple principle. Just understand this for what it is. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. The principle is this. Like generates like. Humans beget humans with human nature and human characteristics. Flesh begets flesh. Flesh cannot beget spirit. Only spirit can do that. The point is, This new birth isn't something like a a new lease on life you get. It's not you get a good piece of advice that nudges you in the right direction. That's not what we're talking about. We are talking about, about the bestowing of a new nature from one, the only one who can give such a thing. You must be born again of spirit. Now, perhaps reading the expression on his face, Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 7, he shouldn't be surprised about this, as surprised about this as he is, He shouldn't be surprised to be told that Israel and even him personally are in need of a new birth, a new heart, a drastic outside intervention of the Spirit. He says in verse 7, I'm just saying what Ezekiel already said. I'm just saying you need to become a part of this this new new reborn people. And then in verse 8, Jesus draws an analogy. Uh, Verse 8 again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's drawing an analogy here and playing off the fact that the same Greek word can be translated as both spirit and wind. Same Greek word is often translated in both of those ways, spirit 
and wind. What he's saying is the wind cannot be controlled by us and it cannot be seen by us. And yet it is still powerfully at work. Even if I can't see it, even if I can't control it, that doesn't mean it's not there. Its effects are obvious to us. In the same way he says, the spirit is not under our control. It's not seen with our eyes, but that doesn't mean it's not at work. It's bringing about this new birth. What he's saying in verse 8 is the spirit's work, like the wind, is both mysterious but also undeniable. You can't see it, but it is obvious. Nicodemus has already been dense when it comes to the Spirit's work in Scripture in Ezekiel 36. And if he's still dull in seeing that it's at work in the world, what he's sort of saying is, Nicodemus, that's kind of on you. Because here's the wind blowing. The Spirit is at work. It's right in front of your face. Can't you see it? So what we're seeing playing out in this, in this interaction is sort of the clash between the status quo in Israel and the radical work of the Messiah. We're seeing sort of the difference between the Messiah Israel expected, which was a Messiah that would conform to their expectations, that would fit into their sort of of power structure. The difference between the the Messiah Israel expected and the Messiah Israel got. Nicodemus is well respected. (coughs) He's in good standing. He's a scrupulous Jew by the standards of the day. But Jesus' response to him implies that the Jewish standards and expectations have missed the mark. He is not in the position he should be. He is not where he should be with relation to God. For all his credentials and all his law-keeping, Nicodemus is still still in need of a radical transformation, the one described by Ezekiel. He's a member of the Valley of Dry Bones. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, Jesus, it's not me who needs to be scrutinized here. You've come to scrutinize me, but it's not me that needs to be scrutinized. It's you, and it's Israel. And so that brings us to verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You know, Nicodemus must have taught for years on the subject of what it it takes to be a part of the kingdom of God, what it means to be in fellowship with God. Nicodemus must have taught on this. He would have talked about, obedience to the law. He would have talked about devotion to God. He would have talked about faithful sacrifice and worship. But now Jesus says he's confronted with a make-or-break condition he's never quite reckoned with before, which is the absolute requirement of a new birth of water and spirit. Jesus' rebuke in verse 10 means Nicodemus has severely overlooked an idea he should have had front and center. And the rebuke continues in verse 11, sort of playing off what was said in verse 2. So in verse 2, Nicodemus seems to speak for many. So he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher from God. So he's speaking with a sort of plurality. We know, as if the we are the authoritative council who give their seal of approval to Jesus. And so the we in verse 2 is a very important, self-important sort of description. But notice what Jesus says in verse 11. Truly I say to you, we speak 
of what we know. So he uses his same language. Here's what we know. He says, Nicodemus, we know a thing or two which you have not understood and you have not received. Jesus implies that actually he is a member of another authoritative council. One that stands in judgment of Nicodemus and not the other way around. Nicodemus, let me tell you what we know. What me and my companions, what, what me and my compatriots know. Perhaps reference to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nicodemus hasn't understood the earthly things Jesus has been talking about. He hasn't understood the transformation that all people need to be admitted into the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, if you cannot understand the here and now basics of entering the kingdom, how will you understand the greater things than that? The heavenly things, the age to come, the consummation of the kingdom. That's the question of verse 12. Nicodemus, if you stumble over understanding the point of entry into the kingdom, how can you begin to understand the glories of this kingdom? And Jesus says in verse 13, I'm just the man to describe these sorts of things to you. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is just the man to describe these sorts of things about the kingdom of God, both the earthly and the heavenly. Kingdom entrance and kingdom consummation. The current age and the age to come. And what he's saying in verse 13 is, my credential is not that I'm just a prophet who's been sent by heaven. I'm a prophet who has literally come from heaven. I've been there. And I came here with first-hand knowledge of everything I'm telling you about. And then in verse 14, Jesus switches pictures, switches metaphors. He switches to a new Old Testament picture of what Nicodemus needs. The reference here is to Numbers 21. In Numbers 21, um, Israel had exhausted the patience of God with their non-ending murmuring and complaining. And so snakes come as judgment and they begin to bite the people. And they begin to cry out that they have sinned and they understand that they are under God's judgment. And so Moses begins to pray for them. And God instructs Moses to hold up a bronze snake on a pole. And Israel is to look upon this snake which is lifted up over them to be saved from this judgment. That's the story. Jesus says in verse 14 that God is getting ready to do something like that again that a bitten and chastised and judged people will turn to God for healing and call on him for healing, and they will be told to look upon something that has been lifted up for their salvation. I'm going to be like that snake on that pole, he says. So, this conversation began with Nicodemus coming to Jesus, evaluating him. Jesus, let me hear a thing or two from you. Let me size you up. Let me understand you. Nicodemus thought he was a righteous man, giving his seal of approval to a sort of upstart rabbi. But what Jesus says Nicodemus really is, is a decrepit man, a member of the Valley of Dry Bones, in need of a radical new birth. Or to switch images, Nicodemus, you're a dying snake-bitten man who is in need of salvation. So that brings us up to John 3.16. We've gotten some good context, hopefully. So what is John 3.16 about? What is, this, what is this verse? And my answer is, it is a meditation on Jesus' mission. Now, before we read 16 through 21, let me say one thing. One, let me make one suggestion on which I don't think much is writing. It's just something to think about. I want to suggest that we're, we're, what we're about to read in verse 16 is actually not 
a continuation of the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. This doesn't come out of Jesus' mouth, I'm suggesting. Rather, it comes from the pen of John, the author, and is meant to be a meditation by John on the mission of Jesus. So, a few things. Your verse might have quotation marks saying, implying that Jesus is saying these words, um, but the ancient text didn't use exclam- uh, quotation marks. Um, if your version has a red letter for the uh, red letters of Jesus, that's the um, translators making that, trying to make a convenient thing, but that's not inspired. So we're not bound by those to say, well, absolutely. And smarter people than me have said that beginning in verse 16, the language begins to sound a lot like the way John writes and less like the way Jesus speaks. Further, these verses speak more explicitly of Jesus' mission than Jesus ever does early on in his ministry. Jesus is not revealing his entire mission to people early on in the ministry. That comes, that comes later. What they read like is a meditation of John, a sort of fleshing out for the reader what Jesus has been hinting at here in these verses, especially in verses 14 and 15. So, again, I don't think anything rides on that. I'm not dogmatic about it. The words are equally as true, whether they come out of Jesus' mouth or John's pen. They're both inspired by the Holy Spirit and absolutely true. But that's how I take it, a meditation of John, a reflection on what it is Jesus has just implied about his mission. Verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus stresses to Nicodemus his need for the new birth. But now John stresses to the reader that what God has done, what, uh, what God is doing in order to make this new birth possible, that's what this is. You need to be born again. Well, what has God done to make that new birth possible? To make salvation from our snake-bitten status possible? To make our resurrection from the valley of dry bones possible? What has God done? The answer of John 3.16 is, motivated by love for this perishing world, this snake-bitten world, God gave his son. Verse 16 again, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17 clarifies that idea of perishing mentioned in verse 16, that that you would not perish. Verse 17 clarifies that. It's not brought about by Jesus coming into the world. Jesus coming doesn't condemn anyone. Jesus coming into the world doesn't cause anyone to perish. The perishing is the state of the world prior to Jesus coming. Jesus' arrival doesn't cause one additional person to perish. They were already perishing. To put it another way, you know, Jesus doesn't come into a neutral world. You know, it might tip in the direction of perishing. It might tip in the direction of eternal life. And Jesus enters that sort of world. No, that's not the case. Jesus comes into an utterly lost world. 
an already perishing and condemned world. Jesus just all but told Nicodemus that he was perishing. He needed to be born again. He needed the radical intervention of God. And what John 3.16 and 17 says is that that state, that perishing state, is everyone's state. And so when Jesus comes... We need to regard this news of Jesus' arrival as purely good news. There is nothing bad about it. He came into an already condemned world, and he came to save it, motivated by love. Verse 18 stresses that Jesus came to save. And if anyone rejects his gift, Jesus doesn't give them condemnation. They just get the condemnation they already had to begin with. So verse 18 again, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We were already condemned. And if we reject Jesus, we just keep the condemnation we already had. But if we do believe, if we do accept, then we can be saved. Verse 19 and 20 uses sort of a new metaphor to describe this. Into an already dark world, Jesus enters at light, as light. The world is condemned. The world is dark. Jesus doesn't come. He doesn't add more darkness. He doesn't add more condemnation. He just enters as light. But it says many will resist his attempts to give life and to give life, to give light. They'll prefer instead their darkness and their condemnation. They'll resent the exposure of their deeds. Some people will like their darkness better than they like the light of Jesus. Some people will, will prefer their condemnation to Jesus' salvation. Just a quick side note here. Um, in verses 19 and 20, John pictures unbelief not as an intellectual choice but rather as a moral choice. So the idea here is not, well, I calculated atheism was more probably true than Christianity. That's not how he describes unbelief. He describes it as, I wanted my sin, and I wanted my way more than I wanted God's way, more than I wanted repentance, more than I wanted Jesus. Which is, I think, a, a lesson. Even when people claim intellectual reasons for unbelief, which do need to be taken seriously and dealt with, but even when people claim intellectual reasons for unbelief, there is often a moral choice in the background of that a volitional component in the background of that. There was often just a, I don't want that. I don't want that to be true. I don't like the implications about me if I accept that that's true, that Jesus is Lord. There was a hatred, a rejection, based on a distaste for Jesus and what he says. So what's John doing in, in John 3.16 and down through verse 21? What's John doing? One, he's showing us what's really behind Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. What's motivating all of this? Jesus' mission is to bring about the new birth, to give new life to people who are spiritually dead. And John 3.16 says that spiritual deadness characterizes everyone. We're perishing. We're condemned. Which is why Jesus presses Nicodemus hard to make him see himself, not as a wise rabbi who can stand in judgment of Jesus, but as a snake-bitten Israelite who needs to look upon a lifted-up Savior. He shows us what's really behind this. And to show us, number two, that we should identify with Nicodemus. Notice, we go from pressing this one man, Jesus goes from pressing this one man on his need to be saved from perishing, to in John 3.16, God's desire for the whole world to be saved from their perishing. So, in other words, John doesn't want us to wring our hands about how clueless the Jewish establishment was. Man, this guy Nicodemus just doesn't get it, does he? He wants us to see how clueless and lost we are. He wants us to see that we are objects of God's love and grace, but what necessitated that extension of love and grace in John 3.16 
It's our state of our, the state of ourselves without God's love and grace, which is perishing, which is condemnation, which is judgment. We already had that part down. And Jesus' entrance is purely good news to save us, to get us to see we need to be born again. We need new life we didn't have already. That's what John 3.16 is. It's a meditation on Jesus' mission as illustrated in its interaction with Nicodemus. Well, let me try to tie up this story. What comes after John 3.16? What comes after is, I'm going to argue, an eventual embrace of the truth of John 3.16. So when we get to verse 22 of John 3, we actually step away from Nicodemus. Um, And we don't get a clue in the rest of this chapter as to what came of him. And we're on to a story about John the Baptist. And we have to wait for it. But John actually does not leave us in the dark about what Nicodemus does with this conversation and how his story plays out. Uh, Let me begin by just noticing something within the conversation that gives a subtle hint to how Nicodemus is is thinking. Um, I think there are subtle hints in the interaction that Nicodemus is actually being receptive to Jesus' words. So notice this. As the conversation plays out in verses 1 through 15, Nicodemus starts talking less and listening more. I want you to notice how Nicodemus's answers get shorter and shorter in the course of the conversation. So, Nicodemus's statements go from verse 2, he speaks 26 words. In verse 4, he speaks 23 words. In verse 9, he speaks not, uh, in verse 9 he speaks 5 words. And after verse 9, Nicodemus doesn't speak again in the interaction. At the very least, we can say this. Nicodemus stops talking and he starts listening. And maybe he's beginning to get the picture. And I tend to think that he is. And I say that based on what happens to the rest of John. Jump forward to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, uh, we're in the midst of a heated debate within the Sanhedrin, this authoritative body Nicodemus is a member of. Uh, there's this heated debate over Jesus and what to do with this, with this man who's going around performing signs and drawing away people to himself with his teaching. And it's in the course of this controversy that Nicodemus, the same Nicodemus, stands up and begins to speak. This is John 7 and verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, that is one of the members of the Sanhedrin, said to them, the rest of the Sanhedrin, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you not from Galilee too? Search and see, no prophet arises from Galilee. What is, what, what is, it, what is happening here? What does this mean? Well, what Nicodemus is doing with his, with his, with his uh, compatriots, eager to condemn Jesus, eager to try to do something about him, he begins pleading with his brethren to give Jesus a hearing, which is what Nicodemus has already done in John 3. He's gave Jesus a hearing. Now, he doesn't outright confess Jesus as the Christ here, That would be a much more heroic thing to do right now. He doesn't do that. But he does say, guys, let's be fair. Guys, how about we obey our own law? Our our law doesn't say we condemn someone without giving them a hearing. Let's hear what he has to say. And they, they don't take kindly to that. They slander him. At the very least, I think we can say Nicodemus is taking Jesus seriously. He's definitely taking him more seriously than his brethren are. Jump forward now to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, the crucifixion has occurred. And typically, crucifixion victims were just thrown into mass unmarked graves, a final indignity. 
But there comes forward a couple of volunteers who will do something, who will attend to Jesus' body. This is John 19 and verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, that's the story in John 3, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about, se- about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And when the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You know, I'm told what they're, what they're doing here is typically women's work in that day and would be very unusual to see two older, uh, richer, you know, uh, prominent men, very unusual for someone like that to do. These two men, old, rich, important, are doing what only women typically did. They wrap a dead body, they anoint it, and then they bury it in this tomb. Why? Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, I came to be lifted up. And when Nicodemus saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, it seems to me he began to understand something about what Jesus came to do, to be lifted up so that he could be born again. I think Nicodemus is getting it. Maybe he's gotten it. Maybe he's going to become an outright disciple. He listened to Jesus and he followed him. Jesus said, I came to be lifted up. He says to his disciples in John, in John 16, I, I, he compares himself to a woman in labor who goes through, who goes through uh, much difficulty and, and pain in order to have a, a new birth, a new life on the other side. Jesus came to be lifted up, to go into this labor, but the result of this being lifted up, the result of this labor is a new birth, which Jesus knew would be well worth the labor pains and death. He did it all so that Nicodemus could be born again, and he did it so that we could be born again also which is what John 3.16 tells us. So what's John 3.16 doing in our Bible? Well, before it comes a conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. And before John can move on to the next story, he has to pause and ask his reader, do you understand what's behind the conversation you just read? Do you understand how the conversation with Nicodemus applies to you? Jesus wasn't pressing Nicodemus about the new birth to be mean to him or to be cryptic. He was pressing him about this idea of the new birth because he came to earth to make this new birth possible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And now that God has given his son, now that the son has come, the mission is to get people like Nicodemus and to get people like us to see that we need that new birth, to see that we need that salvation. So there is a loose end, I think, that gets tied up by the end of this book. Nicodemus acts like a man who believes Jesus was who he said he was. And the question John 3.16 leaves us with is whether we'll recognize the same thing. And then, like Nicodemus, act in accordance with that belief. Revere the crucified Christ. Nicodemus honored the crucified Christ. I hope he did that for the rest of his life. And the question John 3.16 raises is, will you have that same reaction? Will you believe? Will you pledge your allegiance to the Son of God who gave himself for you. If you need to come and to give your life to the crucified Christ, 
We offer that opportunity right now as we stand and sing. For Jesus, but lost is I heart right with God. Is I heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Are all thy powers under Jesus' control? Is I heart right with God? Does each moment abide in thy soul? Is I heart right with God? Is I heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. 